Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 6. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is, is God's, God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this morning for this time to gather, to hear your word, to learn about the suffering servant who came, who came for us. I ask God that you would use your word mightily this morning in our hearts. You would use my words as well in that effort and that we would leave with a newfound love for what you've done for us, for what you came to do, what you were purposed to do, God. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for surprises. And I don't mean the horror movie, scary movie type. I, I, what I have in mind are the touching, unexpected gestures people give. And what comes to mind are those emotional videos of service members returning home. Perhaps you've seen them where a father returns from active duty and surprises their child at school. And so often than not, you see that child just melt in his father's arms, so, so happy that he's come home. And it's the sort of surprise that overwhelms the heart, even if you don't know them. Or to give you another example, I think of the surprising stories in which an unassuming character goes on to have monumental impact. Here's a headline from a local newspaper. That fits what I'm describing. It, it says, Sharp-eyed bus driver saves boy kidnapped from library. Sharp-eyed bus driver saves boy kidnapped from library. The story is surprising to us because the act of saving children isn't usually related to this occupation. The job responsibilities of bus drivers doesn't include saving lives, right? Well, as we consider our passage this morning, what we encounter is a surprising figure who accomplishes an unexpected result through unthinkable means. This figure is Jesus. 
And what we learn is that God became a baby in order to mature into this suffering servant with the purpose of securing salvation for people who don't deserve it. This is good news. And it's surprising news for reasons we'll consider at the end. But let's, let's begin by looking at Isaiah. Up until now, much has taken place in the book, and we saw how the book opened with strong language of judgment, recognizing Israel's sins. And we have since learned of God's intent to bless and to save his people. And, and let's also remember the situation that Israel is in. They're in exile under foreign rule. So when they hear these sorts of promises given, they're given to a people anxious, anxious for God's deliverance. And to everyone's shock, God's deliverance will come about in a way no one could have predicted. And here's how we'll make our way through Isaiah this morning. I understand there to be basically three sections to the passage uh, concerning descriptions, reactions, and afflictions to God's servant. So it's verses 13 to 15, 1 to 3, and 4 to 6. That's how we'll be moving through our passage. So let's begin. And uh, I'll note we'll have to make our way pretty quickly. And this passage is so rich, so rich, but, but let's get going, let's get going. So the first section about the descriptions of God's servant. Right away as the passage opens, we're struck with a contrast. There are two descriptions about God's servant that when taken together are surprising. They are the descriptions of exaltation and humiliation. In verse 13, Isaiah describes the servant as being on the same level as God. We can say this because elsewhere in Isaiah, this exact phrase, high and lifted up, is used in reference to God. Here's Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. To describe the servant in this way, to use these words, this exact phrase, means that this person is deserving of the same sort of exaltation that God received in Isaiah 6. So clearly that person is important, but we're quickly unsettled by the next verse, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in his form beyond that children of man. The same person who is presented as God's equal, is now being described as beaten beyond human semblance. This is shocking. But the mistake, the mistake would be to conclude that this servant has lost. This is why kings shut their mouths in verse 15. It boggles the mind to think that such suffering could be anything other than tragedy, much less victory. Yet, even in his horrible humiliation, there is a purpose, a reason for his disfigurement. And the key to understanding his suffering is understanding his sprinkling. And in order to grasp the mention of sprinkling, we need to consider an important teaching called the atonement. Much of our understanding of Isaiah 53 depends on the atonement and how we understand it. Basically, atonement is the means by which sins are forgiven. Atonement is the means by which sins are forgiven. And in Leviticus 16, what we find is something called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the priest pronounced all the sins of Israel onto one goat, a goat which was sacrificed in place of God's people by being sent into the wilderness to die. And part of that day 
of atonement required other practices, such as the sprinkling of blood from animals. And this sprinkling signified atonement as well as cleansing, reminding the people that their own life was spared by another's. So that was really quick, but back to verse 14 and 15. Take a look at this. These are the first phrases of each verse. Just as many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. I'm convinced that Isaiah is presenting a bit of an uh, equivalency here. It would go something like this. Just as the shock of this servant's disfigured appearance is widespread, so also will his atonement be extensive. Just as the shock of this servant's disfigured appearance is widespread, remember the text says many, many were astonished, so also will his atonement be extensive. Because verse 14 mentions that this servant will sprinkle many nations. The extent of his sprinkling reveals how remarkable this servant is. His blood, unlike the blood of birds and bulls, is sufficient to sprinkle many nations. Not just Israel, not just the altar, not whatever other purpose sprinkling was used for, but many nations. And what we know is Christ is this servant. These few verses so clearly anticipate the life of Christ. Christ was humiliated when he was beaten and flogged and when he was crucified, but he was also exalted in his resurrection and ascension. And what Christ accomplished with his blood was redemption. And here's the point. And this is essentially the point made by the whole passage, but we'll add to it later. Jesus, as God's exalted servant, endured extreme suffering to make atonement for the nations. Jesus, as God's exalted servant, endured extreme suffering to make atonement for the nations. Well, as we saw with the kings of verse 15, this surprising truth elicits reactions, and that's our next portion. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 3, we see two of them, despisement and rejection. And we begin with a pair of questions that boil down to this. The first question asks, who has believed this message from Isaiah? Who has believed this message from Isaiah? And the second question, who understands, who understands this servant to be the very arm of the Lord? And the reactions serve as the answer. No one, no one believes and no one understands, which is surprising in itself. This designation, this title, the arm of the Lord, reveals to us something about the servant and the men who reject him. Much like verse 13, this title is associated with God himself. This arm of the Lord, the one who has been described elsewhere in Isaiah, is unrecognized by these men. And we're told why. And we're moving pretty quick, but there's three reasons I want to give you. Three reasons why men despise and reject him. First, Men reject him because he has an unassuming rise. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 mentions how his rise is natural and quiet. Men perceive his growth to be totally commonplace. Second, men reject him because of his unassuming appearance. He's described as having no majesty, no beauty, no reason for being desired. 
the impression we're left with is that this person is common and even unexceptional. And the last reason he's rejected is because of his disposition. His disposition is shaped by sorrow and grief. However, although this servant is described as being acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows, the next section tells us that they're not his own. They're not his own sorrows. It's not his own grief. Now, despisement and rejection were things Christ experienced all his life. The Pharisees not only rejected Jesus, but they despised Jesus. Even Peter, one of Jesus' own disciples, rejects him three times. And there's this great example in Matthew in which people were completely surprised by Jesus' teaching. They were surprised because they knew him as a son. They knew his parents. They knew where he grew up. It takes place in Nazareth. And here's what they say in Matthew. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? These people knew Jesus and his family. And what they're hearing coming out of his mouth, the teaching, doesn't match up with what they know carpenter's sons to be capable of. And just like Isaiah, Matthew records that these folks don't believe him but reject him. But this too is the counterintuitive nature of what makes Jesus so glorious. God didn't require a handsome, well-liked warrior. What God required was a servant, a servant willing to suffer not only physical affection, but despisement and rejection as well. Now the reasons for such affliction are given in our last verses, and here's where I want to spend a bit more of our time. The final section is, uh, is the focus of the chapter. And what we have in verses 4 to 6 is this servant being described as an atoning sacrifice. And this is demonstrated in three ways. We have the need for this atonement, the nature of this atonement, and the results of this atonement. I'll say that again for the note-takers out there. The need for the atonement, the nature of this atonement, the results of this atonement. And I wish I could have come up with another word than result that was N to get that alliteration, but I'm sorry, it didn't, didn't come together. But that's what we have here, need, nature, and results. So let's read verses 4 to 6 together. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let's start with the need. The need for this atonement has been something much of the book of Isaiah has been addressing. Um, in this passage, Isaiah acknowledged the need with two statements. The end of verse 6 here. Excuse me, the, the beginning of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. These statements, they leave no room to suggest that people have wandered off in innocence. 
as if someone made a thoughtless decision. No, the text says we have turned to our own way. There's a deliberateness to it. There's an intent to go our own way, which implies that to go our own way means not going God's way. And so Isaiah's words provide one conclusion, which is this, that people are sinful. And sinful people need atonement. Sinful people need atonement. How they are atoned for is the focus of the nature of this atonement. And the nature of this atonement can be broken down further into three more parts. So stick with me. Three more parts here. This is the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement is punitive, and I'll explain what all this means. It is punitive, it is fatal, and it is substitutionary. In verse 5, we read of the servant's chastisement, which is not a common word, right? Which can also mean punishment. That's what I mean by punitive. This atonement is punitive because God's justice must be satisfied. He cannot let sins go unpunished, which reveals another aspect of the atonement. Since sins cannot go unpunished, the punishment is described here as fatal. That's what the words convey of pierced and crushed. They're not the sort of blows that anyone can survive. Now here's where I want to focus a bit more is on the nature of the atonement, uh, the substitutionary nature of the atonement. The servant takes on the sins of sinners, accepting the punishment for himself as if they were his own. Take a look at these phrases from these verses. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sorrows and sins borne by the servant are not his own. And together, the punitive nature and the substitutionary nature teaches that this servant dies as a result of someone else's sins. The afflictions of this servant are completely undeserved. Now, this is surprising for a couple reasons. For the people of Isaiah, the people Isaiah is writing to, this would have been quite surprising given the way God has historically provided a substitute. And these will probably be familiar to you. In Genesis, Isaac, his life was spared by a ram which died in his place. In Exodus, the sons of Israel are spared by the blood of the lamb. And of course, in Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, a goat is given to take on the sins of the nation. Now, each of those substitutional sacrifices were accomplished through an animal. But in Isaiah, the substitute is not an animal, but a person. And not just any person, but God's own servant. And this servant will accomplish what no goat or lamb could ever do. What we're getting at here is the results of the atonement. The results being peace and healing. Now, I think most of us typically think of peace as a state 
or a period where there's no war. But when Isaiah means, what he means by peace is reconciliation. Reconciliation between sinners and God. And with respect to healing, the verse says, with his wounds we are healed. The implication being that we have wounds in need of healing. And we're left with this sort of paradox. With his wounds, our wounds are healed. With his wounds, our wounds are healed. How could that be? Well, what peace and healing are intended to communicate together is that the result of the atonement is redemption. The result of the atonement is redemption. There are two passages I'd like to share with you to demonstrate just how perfectly Jesus is described as our substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I'm limiting myself to two because there's really so many. If you took the theme substitutionary atonement and read the Bible, you would come up with so many great scriptures. That would be a great exercise. But here's two. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What's crucial to note from these is that Christ, Christ is unquestionably understood as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Mark explicitly calls him a servant, a servant purposed to give his life on behalf of others for redemption. Peter, in his letter, in his description, describes Jesus as the substitute for sins, as the one who heals wounds, and as the one who shepherds those straying sheep. And here's the point. Jesus suffered death as a substitute for sinners in order to provide redemption to all those who believe in him. And we should note, too, Rejection and despisement are still reactions to Jesus. But those who believe in him can have confidence in his work. Those who believe in him can have confidence in his work. Now I'd like to note one more way this is surprising to us. A few weeks ago, my wife bought a book for our son called When Santa Learned the Gospel. It's, great. it's a great little book. I, I commend it to you. To all of you, of all ages. It's only 15 pages long, so we can get to that pretty quick. But it provides a great take on Christmas, and here's basically how the story goes. An elf is tasked with making a Bible because a child has asked for one for Christmas. And out of curiosity, this elf wonders, what is this book all about? And in it, she learned all about Jesus, who he was, what he came to do, and that he died for sins. And after reading this and being convinced of it, she shares what she's learned with Santa. And Santa is totally perplexed by this gospel, by this message from the elf. He's stumped by this teaching because, as the old legend goes, Santa thought everyone was either naughty or nice. 
His way of thinking was quite easy to understand. If you were good, you got a gift. And if you were bad, you got coal. But as that story unfolds, we see that Santa, even Santa, had his own way of determining who was bad and who was good. There's this great picture on one of the first pages that illustrates Santa's thinking in his workshop. Uh, There's a big sign in the workshop that says, the good will get the presents and the bad will get the coal, and trying to be good enough is good enough a goal. It's such an insightful little quote. I'm going to say it again. The good will get the presents and the bad will get the coal, and trying to be good enough is good enough a goal. Santa had to accept being good enough because he knew that otherwise no one would make the nice list. Uh, It's such a great little story because it brings out the surprising nature of the gospel. The story of Santa is a cute little story that we tell during Christmas. But what's interesting to me is to think about how This story illustrates how we understand morality to be working all the time, whether we're in Christmas or not. If you're good, you get good. If you're bad, you get bad. And there's truth to this. But as many have come to realize, no one can be good perfectly all the time. And if that's the case, wouldn't that mean we would rightly receive bad? This strict way of thinking leaves no room for grace. And this is a surprise, the surprise that God cares so much for imperfect and sinful people that he sent his own son to suffer in order to reconcile those sinners to himself. He knows that we've missed the mark. He knows we can never make it on our own. He had to do it for us. And this has some huge implications for all of us, anyone hearing this. For those who believe in Jesus, there's confidence and comfort in Isaiah's words. Reconciliation and peace are accomplished for you. Because of Christ, you are part of a relationship that is gracious. A relationship, I would add, that provides healing. But there's more. Uh, As Pastor Bruce noted in his sermon The prophecies of Isaiah can have more than one intended fulfillment. And so in one way, Christ's life, death, and resurrection fulfill these words. We do now experience reconciliation and healing. But there's a final sense, a final sense in which these words will find total fulfillment. When we aren't living in a broken world, but we live in total peace, complete reconciliation with God, where our wounds are completely healed. And there's no risk of getting more. And that too is part of our Advent. Our anticipation of Christ's return to accomplish all of this. There's much hope and confidence to be drawn from that. And for those who haven't believed in Christ, I would ask you to consider him in all that you've heard. I can't presume to know all that burdens you. But I'll say this. Any grief, any sorrow, any guilt and sin that you may be struggling to carry, Jesus can bear it. Jesus can bear it. 
And he's not only capable of bearing all of it, he desires to carry it. Now I should add that that same sort of invitation is still true for Christians too. For those of you who have guilt, have your wounds and your sins, you have a Savior, you have a shepherd who will bear those with you. This is why God came. It's an astonishing thing, but it's true. God came as an infant to grow up and eventually to suffer and to face a penalty that was undeserved in order to provide salvation to many people, to many nations, to whoever would believe in him. And this is good news. It's the good news of Christmas, and it's good news that shows the cross's significance even now when we consider Christ's incarnation. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I thank you for this morning and for this Advent season and our time in Isaiah to be thinking about who you are, what you've accomplished in Christ. And we thank you that you did come. You took the form of us. You came with a purpose, and you accomplished that purpose. And God, we hope right now, we look forward to what's to come. When all of this will come to fulfillment, and we have complete reconciliation and healing, and we ask, God, that you would touch our hearts, anyone here, all of us, God, to be reminded with the new fire of what you've accomplished for us. Help us, God, to not only be renewed in our love for you and for what you've accomplished, but also to renew our love for others to share this good news in this season. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.